Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. Trigger warning for racism and graphic descriptions of death. Manhattan was the name given to the most top-secret U.S. military project in World War II after its headquarters in New York. However, the actual engineering and testing of the project occurred at sites around the country, most extensively in Los Alamos, New Mexico, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and Hanford, Washington. Although the story is usually told from the point of view of the scientists and military minds behind the bomb, which includes a veritable who's who list of Nobel laureates, there is a deeper story which is often ignored. Hundreds of thousands of Japanese civilians were killed following the atomic attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki when their country was already prepared to surrender, and the effects of radioactivity were seeded in the lands and bodies of thousands of Americans living and working on the peripheries of the project, only to take root years later and wreak havoc on their health and well-being while the pro-radiation crowd denied their experiences. The origins of this story date back to long before even the First World War. In the ages prior to the 20th century, as we've discussed on prior episodes, science was not as formalized as it is now, and even now there isn't always great scientific method involved in some cases, like fuck around and find out has always kind of been a way that we learn new things, for better or for worse. But before we knew much of what we know now, there were a lot of privileged old white guys who were doing things just because they could. And that's pretty much this whole story, like at least part one of this story. Tale as old as time. Yeah, for real. <laughs> In 1895, Wilhelm Konrad Röntgen of the University of Würzburg in Germany was playing around with early cathode ray tubes called Crookes tubes. These basically just blast electrons and are like very early versions of tube televisions that you and I grew up with, but that pawn shops mm -hmm. won't even take anymore because they sure. are dangerous. Röntgen just happened to have a barium platinocyanide coated screen in his room, as one does, um, <laughs> because it was typically used to detect solar energy. And he might have suspected that the energy from the cathode ray tube would have an impact of some kind on this screen because other researchers at the university had complained that photographic plates became foggy when stored in the same room as these tubes. But it's unlikely he anticipated the reaction he observed. He decided to hold different things between the tube and the screen to see what would happen. And while he noticed that things like lead caused the screen to glow less, as though it was blocking energy, he also realized he could see the bones of his own hand. <laughs> Röntgen declared his new discovery to be X-radiation, or X-rays, because X is always cool when you don't know what the fuck sure. to call it. <laughs> right. And he earned himself the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1901. Just looking at him. Would you look at that? <laughs> Weird. Would you look at that? <laughs> this can't have any weird implications down the line. <laughs> Actually, he even, like, brought his wife in and was like, honey, come look at this. So, like, oh, no. the picture he sent out to everybody was of his wife's bones and her, like, wedding huh. ring. <laughs> wow. 
A chair at the French Museum of Natural History named Henri Becquerel decided to expand on Röntgen's findings by trying to determine if other substances gave off x-rays. He happened to have some uranyl potassium sulfate that phosphoresced in the sun, which is a different kind of radiation, and he thought he could replicate the x-rays on photographic plates. But it was cloudy for several days in France, and so he gave up and put the plate and the uranyl potassium sulfate rock in a drawer. When the sun came out again and he was ready to conduct his experiment, he found the plate was foggy, meaning that the uranium was giving off some kind of energy even without exposure to the sun. Two lower-ranking husband and wife researchers named Marie and Pierre Curie did the hard labor of Becquerel's work and extracted tons of uranium from pitch blend ore, and the three of them shared the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1903. Hmm. Becquerel would later have his name be used as the International Unit for Radioactivity, a term invented by Marie Curie to describe the energy found in uranium, thorium, radium, and polonium. And the Curie is also another measurement of radioactivity. In 1932, the subatomic particle the neutron was discovered by physicist James Chadwick, and in 1934, it was first suggested that power could be obtained by shooting the essentially massless neutron at the nucleus of an atom. The first two attempt anything like this were the Curie's daughter, Irene, and her husband, Frederic Joliot. They won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1935, while Chadwick won in physics that year. The Joliot-Curies did not use neutrons, however, but alpha particles, which are two protons and two neutrons bound together, so it's usually written as helium-4, and is itself a type of radiation that results in radioactive isotopes and this is what earned them the Nobel Prize. That year, Frederick Joliot wrote of his findings, If such transmutations do succeed in spreading in matter, the enormous liberation of usable energy can be imagined. But unfortunately, if the contagion spreads to all the elements of our planet, the consequences of unloosing such a cataclysm can only be viewed with apprehension. So he knew what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. As an example, he compared the power that could be emitted by a nucleus to that of a nova star flaring up and becoming visible to the naked eye on Earth. That's the type of energy that he's mm -hmm. expecting. In 1934, Enrico Fermi was the first to shoot neutrons at a nucleus and to approach nuclear fission by creating a new isotope, although he didn't realize that right away. For his advances in modern alchemy, he won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1938. He also has a list of things named after him, including the femtometer for measurements in particle physics, called the Fermi, subatomic particles called fermions, and magnetic attraction between a nucleus and its electron is known as the Fermi interaction. Hmm. The same year Fermi won the Nobel Prize, a Jewish-German scientist named Lisa Meitner became the first to actually succeed in producing nuclear fission after fleeing to Sweden to avoid the Nazis. If we're talking modern alchemy, this was truly it. Meitner created barium from uranium and astounded everybody, including herself. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> the next major discovery came when Danish physicist Niels Bohr, inventor of the solar system-like Bohr model of the atom, found and published a 1939 work on the effects of a nucleus being shot with and capturing a neutron. When isotopes are formed, they must release a certain amount of threshold energy, which is different for different parent isotopes. Most importantly, he discovered that uranium-235 had the lowest threshold energy and would create fission with any neutron shot at it. 
Therefore, uranium-235 is fissile. Furthermore, mm. the energy given off by these fission reactions creates a chain reaction of neutrons shooting nearby atoms in a cascading effect, and that's how we get energy. This is so fascinating. I know nothing about this stuff. <laughs> I should say that I, I did take nuclear chemistry. I took it a couple times, but I was an analytical chemist, so a lot of this I had to refresh myself on and is mm -hmm. still, I'm just, you know. We want to talk about toxicology, so I'm getting through the nuclear stuff so that we can get there. But this is no, not... this stuff is like, <laughs> like I'm like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was apparent to Bohr then that this might be attractive for the creation of a weapon, but he didn't think it would be possible to source the amount of uranium two thirty five needed for that. Like it'd be a lot of uranium two thirty five, and that's just it's not naturally occurring in a pure form. Okay. Okay. Others weren't sh so sure, though. All of the findings had been made public, and Meitner began her uranium atom-splitting experiments in Berlin in 1938. Three Hungarian physicist refugees now living in the United States were very concerned about the prospect of the Germans being the first to create an atomic weapon. Their names were Leo Szilard, Eugene Wigner, and Edward Teller. And they wrote a letter to Albert Einstein telling him that he needed to immediately bring this concern to the attention of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Einstein personally delivered the, the letter on October 11, 1939, and Roosevelt created a committee that would grant financial aid to American universities to conduct uranium research. The issue of sourcing enough fissile material to create a bomb stumped 16 research groups in the first year. It was, however, determined that not as much uranium would be needed as originally thought. If 5 kilograms could be extracted for a bomb, the explosion would be equivalent, theoretically, to several thousand tons of dynamite. I mean, that's a pretty big explosion. It's a pretty big explosion. And Germany was, in fact, working towards their own atomic weapon, as the rest of the world suspected, beginning in 1939. The head of their program, who was officially appointed later in 1942, was the country's youngest full professor, Werner Heisenberg. He is credited with developing quantum mechanics, which earned him the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1932, and he taught theoretical physics at the University of Leipzig. While equals in his field were fleeing from the Nazis, he and Max Planck chose to stay behind in an attempt to prove that not all of Germany was falling to the nonsense of the Third Reich, according to them. Heisenberg was not Jewish, although theoretical physics was considered a Jewish science, and that's just Nazi logic. That It makes no sense. Mm. But since he accepted the role as head of their atomic bomb project, to me, he is a Nazi. Like, he could have fled the country with Fermi and Bohr, but instead he stayed behind mm -hmm. and headed their atomic project. Right. Like, there's no reasonable explanation for that. Right. So that's what he was doing, and I really don't mention Heisenberg again. Uranium enrichment from uranium-238 to uranium-235 required a medium or moderator substance in some methods. And do you know what I mean by, like, uranium-238 and uranium-235? Mm-mm. So that's just... Just that it's, like, I, I mean, I understand that it's, like, is it just that it's makeup's different? Or is it, like, how that it's sourced is different? So... These are different isotopes, and if you look at the periodic table and you look at the, like, main isotope form, that's the average of all of the isotopes that we've found. Mm, okay. And so uranium-235 contains 143 neutrons and 92 protons, and that's how we get to that 235, 235. number. 
Gotcha. And uranium-238 contains three more neutrons. Oh, okay. So the kind that we want is 235 that has three less protons. Okay. In 1940, Heisenberg knew that water was not an appropriate substance as a medium for uranium enrichment. But very pure graphite or heavy water could possibly work. And heavy water is water made with deuterium, which is hydrogen with a proton and a neutron in the nucleus. It's an isotope of hydrogen, which typically has a proton and no neutron in the nucleus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it could be used because it slows down neutrons to prevent them from that cascading effect. And it also doesn't readily absorb neutrons. Now, Germany had no extraction plant of their own to create heavy water. And it wasn't feasible under wartime conditions for them to build one. The only place in the world that produced enough heavy water to enrich enough uranium for a bomb was Norway at the Norsk Hydroelectric Plant, which produced heavy water as a byproduct of hydrogen electrolysis to create ammonia. And I know I've mentioned ammonia a couple times, but my husband, the doctor, told me that I probably should remind people why ammonia is so important. So would you... Venus, remind us about why, especially in wartime, ammonia is so very, very important. I don't remember. <laughs> See, this is why I should remember. This is why we, we need a reminder, because I don't remember. So ammonia But I have a terrible memory, so this speaks <laughs> not to the episode, but to me. Ammonia is important because if we create fertilizers with ammonia, that essentially stops, like, world hunger. Like, it's such a potent fertilizer that mm. especially in wartime, it's really, really important to have that so that we can ensure that our people, at least locally, are being fed when we can't do gotcha. imports and exports. Yeah. So we need fertilizer. We need fertilizer. We need ammonia. So if anybody had mentions of ammonia production on their lethal dose bingo card, you may cross that <laughs> off your card. <laughs> and don't put your pens down because you're also about to cross something else off your card, unless you're driving, and then do it later. <laughs> IG Farben. Ah. <laughs> they owned stock in Norsk Hydro because they needed access to the plant for the Haber-Bosch process, which is a way of making ammonia. And that was huge. You can go listen to the cyanide episode about them. They really got their fingers in everything. They really did. <laughs> so they approached the Norwegians to ask if they would be cool with selling all of their heavy water to the Germans, which was about 50 gallons for approximately $120,000, and then selling them 30 gallons a month after that. And I'm not entirely sure on these calculations, since it was a German Nazi company trying to make a deal in Norway, and the numbers mm -hmm. in the making of the atomic bomb by Richard Rhodes appear in U.S. dollars, so I'm not entirely sure of the units sure. on this. But my guess is this that was is that this was equivalent to about $52,633 per gallon, in 2023 U.S. dollars. Oh, that's which, crazy. It sounds really good, right? Yeah. But a gallon of heavy water now, which is like an absurd amount to buy, it would put you on a list if you were like an actual Cidric, Sigma Aldrich customer. They'd be like, what the fuck are you doing with this heavy water? <laughs> so a gallon now is actually $53,000. And so... Oh, wow. Yeah. They, so it's still... <laughs> yeah, they were trying to kind of like undersell. And, you know, maybe it was a matter of purity. Like, I'm sure it wasn't that pure as a byproduct. But, like, in either case, it wasn't a great deal. And the Norwegians were very suspicious about why IG Farben was asking for this. Right. 
And they were only making about three gallons a month at the time. They're like, hey, can you uh, (laughs) ten times that now? Now. Yeah. Now. (laughs) And so they were like, why do you guys need that? And IG Farben just didn't answer. They just didn't give them a response. And so in February 1940, Norsk Hydro refused to sell the heavy water to the Germans or increase their production. They just flat out said no. All right. They yeah. had that that little tingly feeling. Their spidey sense went off. And yeah. <laughs> it was right. Like. And so the French were also interested in the heavy water method. Because are they also trying to build their own weapon at this point in time? I mean, they are, but they're kind of trying to do it. I mean, they're doing it on the Allied side, so there's a lot more shared gotcha. information over gotcha. here. Okay. So they were trying to they were trying out the heavy water method, and Jolio Curie told the French military, you know, I th- I want to do this heavy water thing, and then they organized a meeting with Norsk Hydro because they're the only ones who make it. At the beginning of March. So they get there after the Nazis do, after ID Farben does. And the French, who were represented by Jacques Allier, offered the Norwegians 1.5 million kroner for half of the water, expecting that the Germans would come back and demand Norsk Hydra to sell you know, them the rest. And then the company <laughs> would at least have half to give to them to not like right. cause problems. And this is equivalent to roughly $182,800 per gallon. It was a very Mm -hmm. good deal. And yet, when the Norwegians learned of the French's purpose for buying the heavy water, they insisted that they take all of it for free. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Alrighty. Good on you, Norsk Hydro. Yeah. So the water was placed into 26 cans and left Norway at midnight with the undercover Allier dispatched to Edinburgh on two planes. A decoy plane was ordered out of the air by German fighters who believed the Allier had boarded it, and the two plane loads were then put on a train and a ferry to Paris, where Joliot Curie began using the heavy water for his experiments. So it went all over Europe to avoid the Germans. Okay. Unfortunately, when the Germans invaded Norway, Norsk Hydro was forced to increase production of heavy water for the Germans to 1.5 tons per year. Oh, wow. Yeah. The Germans also had access to thousands of tons of ore in the Congo, which was under Belgian rule. And so they had most of the ore that was shipped to Belgium before the occupation there began. And that's important because it means that they have access to uranium. Mm-hmm. However, and when... wait, is it is it the right uranium that they have access to, or is yeah. it the 238? It is the 235. Well, they can get the 235 from the 238. So, so it's good enough. It's good enough, yeah. Gotcha. So when Belgium fell to the Nazis, the owner of the largest uranium ore producer in the world had much of the Belgian ore sent to New York. When this supplier was contacted by the representatives of the Manhattan Project, he first drove such a hard bargain that the U.S. refused. When Nazi occupation threatened to spread into Africa by 1942, he was more than happy to sell all the ore located there, as well as that which was already mined and still stored in the Congo. So he just really didn't want the Nazis to get at it. And the Americans, they felt like, and they were constantly a step behind the Germans as Nazi occupation spread through Europe. When they claimed France, they gained access to their cyclotron, which was a much-needed tool for enriching uranium. 
The heavy water had been smuggled into England before the Nazis could get it, as had many of the researchers, but Joliot Curie remained behind so that the cyclotron would stay in France instead of being shipped to Germany. And the reason that the cyclotron was so important was to help accelerate particles to the threshold energy necessary for nuclear mm. fission. So it was this okay. huge thing. And Giulio Curie was great because he really was behind a lot of the resistance. So he really, he stayed behind to be with the cyclotron and make sure they couldn't get their hands on it. But he really bogged down a lot of the work that they were trying um, to do in France. Not just a scientist. I know, yeah. He, he did good. He did good. Heisenberg could have and he chose not to. In 1941, while looking for better and better uranium isotopes for weaponry, American chemist Glenn Seaborg, for whom the 106th element on the periodic table is named, discovered that he'd found a totally new element. Number 94 on the periodic table was named after a planet as uranium and neptunium had been when neptunium was produced in the same way in 1940. This new element, made from the beta decay of neptunium, was called plutonium and plutonium 239 was even more fissile than uranium 235 and could be produced somewhat easily by irradiating radium into neptunium and then chemically separating the plutonium that is produced from the neptunium so it sounds complicated but it was actually much easier and much more efficient than uranium 235 gotcha okay james chadwick the discoverer of the neutron had been part of both the Neptunium and the Plutonium discoveries, and later recalled the discovery in the spring of 1941 this way. I realized then that a nuclear bomb was not only possible, it was inevitable. Sooner or later, these ideas could not be peculiar to us. Everybody would think about them before long, and some country would put them into action. By May 1942, five different methods were considered viable for attempting large-scale production. None of them promised certainty, but Nobel Prize-winning physicist Professor Arthur Compton reflected the concerns of the U.S. government when he told the National Defense Research Committee that The Germans are at present probably far ahead of us. They started their program vigorously in 1939, but ours was not undertaken with similar vigor until 1941. And so, in early 1942, the Manhattan Project as we recognize it today began. Army Brigadier General Leslie Groves was made the chief of the program, program on September 23, 1942. His three committee advisors were Dr. James Conant, previously a major in the Chemical Warfare Service in World War I, Dr. Vannevar Bush, and Rear Admiral Purnell of the Navy. The first site chosen to conduct work for the project, Site X, because again, X is always we love cool. X. <laughs> yeah. I just ask Elon Musk. Oh, God, right? <laughs> so the first site they chose was Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which was considered to be an isolated area that was 18 miles from Knoxville and had electrical power, a water supply, and train access. The few who did live in the 59,000 acres acquired in Rowan and Anderson counties were poor, living in log cabins that had yet to receive electricity from the dams. And so the U.S. government was not concerned about uprooting the 100 families living in the area, whose eviction went into effect a mere week after the purchase of the land on oh, October wow. 7th. They got right right to it. Right to it. As soon as Groves was put into this, because there was another guy before him when it was still, like, in the baby baby steps of the Manhattan Project, and mm -hmm. as soon as Groves was put in, this was, like, the first thing he did. Like, hmm. 
they literally were like, you're on the Manhattan Project. And he was like, I need to go to Tennessee then. Like, it happened very quickly. Wow. Groves was then introduced to the main scientists at work on the project. At Columbia University, a secret nuclear laboratory was led by Dr. Harold Urey, winner of the 1934 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for Isolating Deuterium, and a member of the U.S. Atomic Committee. His group was working on gaseous diffusion enrichment of uranium. At the University of Chicago, there were doctors Leo Szilard and Eugene Wigner, authors of the letter Einstein gave to Roosevelt, as well as Enrico Fermi, who took a job at Columbia originally to get his Jewish wife out of fascist Italy. The head of the group, Dr. Arthur Compton, won the 1927 Nobel Prize in Physics for studies of x-rays, and in March of 1942, there were only 45 people involved in the secret work taking place at the University of Chicago under the direction of these men and some other top scientists, but by June, there was 1,250. Well, that escalated quickly. I know. And how did they keep that secret? That's a lot of the university. That's a, yeah. <laughs> well, that's a huge influx. <laughs> huge influx. Just yeah. suits walking home. Hey. Hey. <laughs> Nothing to see here. At Berkeley with Seaborg, as well as the winner of the 1939 Nobel Prize for inventing the cyclotron, Dr. Ernest O. Lawrence. At Berkeley, a special cyclotron was built called the Calutron for University of California Cyclotron. Outside of Chicago, the first location for building and running plutonium production piles was established. Piles were basically just that at first, piles of graphite blocks that were used to slow down neutron sources, so they were used instead of heavy water. Mm. And, and this allowed for the fission of uranium-235 without shooting ionizing radiation into the surrounding environment. Larger piles would later be called reactors. Plutonium was being used because, as Groves reportedly said, The plutonium process seemed to offer us the greatest chances for success in producing bomb material. Every other process depended on physical separation of materials having infinitesimal differences in their physical properties. A company called Stone and Weber was first enlisted for this, but Dr. Compton doubted their chemical expertise. In October of 1942, E.I. DuPont de Nemours was asked to take over in their stead. DuPont resisted because they themselves did not have much experience in nuclear chemistry and were concerned about the intensity of the physics over the chemistry involved, and there were many opportunities for operating hazards, as well as a high probability of project failure if the produced plutonium was not very, very pure, which could result in the bomb being a dud. Mm. DuPont sold not only chemicals, but also, notably, explosives, and were already involved in World War II, despite being labeled merchants of death in the 1930s for selling mass amounts of gunpowder in World War I. And this had not been great PR. However, they were eventually convinced when they were told that they could stop the Germans from developing the bomb first, <laughs> and could possibly save the lives of tens of thousands of people. And they saw a demonstration by Enrico Fermi on December 2, 1942, that proved the safety of graphite nuclear piles as well as their ability to produce more neutrons than they absorbed within the system. A controlled, self-sustaining chain reaction from which energy could either be harnessed or it could be released all at once in the case of a bomb. They would need to know how much energy they could control in the weapon, and DuPont would be tasked with building bigger reactors to get to that point. So... 
It was essentially proof of concept. They weren't sure they Mm -hmm. could do it before this demonstration. Now they're like, yep, this is a thing. This is a thing. But before the demonstration, we weren't even sure that the demonstration would work. Like, they they are very smart people at work on this, but they are also working in the 1940s and are kind of bumbly, right? Well, yeah, I mean, because it's, like, also, like, what if something goes wrong? Like, this is a very, like, the potential for catastrophic mistakes seems likely. Yes. Or, no, like, well, I don't even know if likely. Is it likely? I mean, it seems likely. Likely. Very likely. Yeah. Yeah. It seems likely. And, I I mean, mean, they, like, they knew that there were dangers and they still, like, weren't quite sure even how to deal with those. So, like. A bunch of rooms had already been contaminated with radioactivity at all three universities, like, mm. decades Because they didn't know what they were doing. Right. Or they, because they didn't, it's not that they didn't know what they were doing at the time, it's that they didn't know what they were dealing with. Kind of, yeah. And they yeah. can't know what they're doing if, if they don't, they don't know what they're dealing, know what they're dealing with. with. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because really all we had was radium at this point. We knew about mm. radium, and even then it was kind of like, do we? Because, I mean, we're still like, radium could be used medicinally, and like, we're tr- we're still trying to work through all of that bullshit. Right. Right. And so the radioactivity contamination, it was kind of a known risk to the departments and university officials, but this demonstration that Fermi was working on, he didn't get approval from university officials because Dr. Compton knew that the university president would decline any request being made to build a fucking nuclear reactor (laughs) of this size on university campus. It was called Chicago Pile 1, and it was built into the stands of an abandoned football field called Stag Field in the middle of Chicago. Like, Oh, wow. Yes. So Compton and Fermi, they're smart. They're pretty certain that the demonstration in this wooden and graphite reactor was going to be safe. (laughs) pretty certain though they weren't like absolutely sure there wouldn't be a meltdown and like they didn't have the word meltdown at the time but they like they kind of knew right they kind of knew like what the implications maybe might be but they Mm -hmm. were like we're we're Mm -hmm. pretty sure we're pretty confident it's gonna be fine and it was it was fine and so after their demonstration dupont agreed to take on the project under the condition that they would make no profit off of it to avoid the World War I mistake of appearing to be war profiteers. Mm, mm-hmm, they, mm-hmm. So they signed a fixed fee contract of $1, and the government had to agree to pay for all costs of the project and would accept any developed patent rights. Now, Groves ran into issues with the men he'd been given pretty much immediately. Dr. Compton admitted he told his wife Betty everything, so if he was given a clearance, then she would need one as well, because there was no way he was keeping anything this monumental from her. Which, like, if you were to tell somebody <laughs> that today while getting a clearance, you would not get a clearance. You would not get a clearance. And he's like, all right, well, <laughs> Thanks thank for you for that information. Yeah, thank you for that information. Good day, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Lawrence could only produce micrograms of enriched uranium and had distinctly different, more academic ideas of what urgency and success meant rather than groves in the military. Because to to do some of this, you would have to run the cyclotron for like 20 hours. And he ran it for like 15 minutes at a time. And groves was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, we we need to pick up production, my guy. Right. And Lawrence was like, but we're doing it. Isn't that great? We couldn't do this a year ago. And right. Like, He's just pumped on the, the concept of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then Groves himself 
didn't know much about what the people were doing because he's just the military guy. Sure, right. He's not a scientist. He's not. Right. And so he infamously repeated the word isotope as isotrope in a pitch meeting to Kodak when they wanted to operate electromagnetic plants at Oak Ridge. And <laughs> the scientists were like, you are so fucking embarrassing right now. <laughs> we're trying to look cool in front of Kodak. Right. <laughs> also... As was pointed out by theoretical physicist Dr. Robert Oppenheimer of Berkeley, there was a lack of central intelligence sharing. Between the three university campuses and the proposed location at Oak Ridge, no one was being kept abreast of what each other was doing, and they couldn't talk about different theories that could work or which had already been eliminated as possibilities. Like, they're working all over the country, so it's like, it's not working out great. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, in technology, obviously mm -hmm. not what it was. So communication, yeah, yeah. not going to be as efficient. Right. Yeah. So Groves agreed with Oppenheimer that there should be a central location with a central scientific leader. And his first choice for this position was Dr. Lawrence, but he couldn't be pulled from his work at Berkeley with the Calutron. And similarly, the other Nobel laureates couldn't be relocated from the work they were already well invested in. And so Groves determined that the leadership of this to-be-formed centralized group would have to fall to Oppenheimer himself. He was not totally pleased with this decision because he was a theoretical physicist, he had no administrative experience, and most importantly, he had left-leaning interests and showed... <gasps> I know, right? Oh my god. And he showed a lack of interest in the background and state of the U.S., a background check from the FBI revealed that Oppenheimer was actually active in the Communist Party during the Spanish Civil War, and he had a communist mistress. <laughs> <laughs> the plot thickens here. I know. Oppenheimer didn't consider himself a communist, but this made Groves and the FBI nervous. And under any cir other circumstances, Oppenheimer also would not have gotten a security clearance with these connections on his record. He would have right. been considered, like... Huge Dangerous. Threat. Yeah. <laughs> but ultimately, Groves decided the administrative parts would still fall to him, and Oppenheimer could be trusted with the science, which was the whole point. So things were settled. The central location chosen was Los Alamos, New Mexico, some 20 miles outside of Santa Fe. Specifically, pre-existing buildings being used by the Los Alamos Ranch School for Boys, which was experiencing financial difficulty and whose owners were happy to sell even if it meant that the graduating class of 1943 had to cut their years short by graduating in January. I'm sure they weren't complaining about that, though. <laughs> I'm sure they weren't, but it's still like you, you've uprooted 100 families in Tennessee, right. and now you're like making right. it so these kids don't finish senior Graduates. year. Like. <laughs> right. But the boys' school was not the only place of, res of residence on the land the Army found for the project. 32 homesteader families of Mexican and Spanish descent living in New Mexico, ident identifying as Hispanos, owned nearly 9,000 combined acres of the land. When the army contacted them, they were given 48 hours to evacuate, and those who didn't comply were forced off at gunpoint. Some of the homesteaders were offered as little as $7 per acre, and even despite this low value, some people still never saw any money. Ranches and homes were bulldozed, and livestock was shot or let loose. Los Alamos officially became an activated military establishment on April 1, 1943, with temporary barracks meant for supporting this new scientific community in the desert for the duration of the war. 
There were coal-burning stoves, no sidewalk, and it was all inside barbed wire fencing that the European scientists said reminded them of concentration camps. Mm -hmm. That's a vibe. Yeah. And I suspect that this kind of project had never before been undertaken by the U.S. government. I know there's a lot of other major projects. We had Japanese internment camps at the time, so there were big projects, but, like, just... The, the people involved, the security the clearances. Like, yeah. Yeah. I don't think we'd ever done it, so I don't think that they were prepared to do it. And so they, they didn't realize that every nine months, the working population would double. And that's not even including, like, wives and children, which were also there because it was a community in the desert. Hmm. And so the construction on this temporary housing never stopped. By the end of the war, more than 200 children were born in Los Alamos. Oh, wow. Yeah. The lack of sidewalks led to a desert town that was constantly muddy in parts of seasons. And then even the scientists didn't really know how to treat radioactive materials. Again, they're kind of bumbling. Seaborg sent a 200 milligram sample of plutonium, which was basically the world's entire supply of plutonium, to Los Alamos at the beginning of April 1943. Presumably just through the mail. <laughs> and then he came to visit in July and took the sample back in his pocket and then on a suitcase on a train back to Chicago without any sort of security measures. Nice. <laughs> so the, smartest, the wild west indeed. <laughs> the smartest guys in the world are still doing this. Yeah. This is great. Uh, yeah. Super good. So, sourcing uranium was still a problem, even after the U.S. got the deal on the ore in the Congo. Two out of their 40 shipments were lost in submarine attacks, and they still needed more. And uranium, prior to the 1940s, was considered a useless waste product from vanadium mining, which found near-negligible sales in ceramics glaze. So, van vanadium was in the production of steel alloy, very important for, like, building our railway system and all of that and then they would have this uranium that they were like i don't know what to do with it i guess ceramics which <laughs> we might cover it at some point it's a crazy story <laughs> interesting so in late 1942 the army corps of engineers was able to order 80,000 pounds of domestic uranium from u.s vanadium in montrose county colorado close to home huh close, yeah i was just yeah they also got a contract for uranium sludge from U.S. Vanadium and the Vanadium Corporation of America in Monticello, Utah. Mining was not permitted on the Navajo Reservation, although restrictions were not always acknowledged when white people violated the treaty the Navajos had with the U.S. government. The mining of uranium ore was permitted by the tribe, although begrudgingly by many of them. Money was promised to certain players, but promises continued to be broken. And this is when the vanadium, when it was realized that that couldn't be the source of all of the rain that they needed, they decided mm. to talk to the Navajo people. And Navajo individuals were given preference for the mining jobs, which some of them appreciated for the much-needed cash, but others felt that their own people were selling out and helping to destroy the land that they loved. All the men in the region had been equally enlisted in the war and felt it important to contribute to the safety of their people since the power of the overseas foreign enemy was a greater unknown to all. 
Many Navajo men had to stop their schooling to fight overseas, and the ones who couldn't fight because of language barriers in the military were left behind with schools that had too few students to carry out the year. But they were able to work in the mines on the reservation in Arizona near the Utah state border, although these were more primitive and had less powerful equipment than the mines in Colorado, meaning they had to work harder than their northern colleagues, and they did so for a minimum wage or less. Ugh. And no one was told that there was any danger to their health. Because it, we didn't know, right? We well, didn't know yet. We kind of did. did. We kind of did. We at least knew about radium. And so the, the dangers of radiation were known because this was after the radium girls case. Mm -hmm. So if, if you're not aware, the radium girls case was a case with the luminous paint companies in the 1920s. The radium girls would paint watch dials with luminous paint. It was radioactive. And it ended up that the girls got sick. The company said it wasn't their fault. And eventually the company did have to do something and they had to start employing safety measures. And these safety measures were actually similar to those that were set up at Los Alamos. They used the luminous paint company as their reference point. Mm. So they, so okay, so they did know. They did know about radiation. They, know. they okay. knew that the mining could be very dangerous and they didn't tell anyone. Okay. With the new discovery of plutonium, they could only extrapolate what the possible health ramifications of exposure were, but again, they had a pretty good guess based on radium. On March 16, 1943, the 1,500 residents of White Bluffs, Richland, and Hanford, Washington received the following letter from the Department of Justice. You are advised that on February 23, 1943, the United States of America instituted U.S. versus Alberts number 128, to acquire certain real property by condemnation, including lands apparently owned or occupied by you for military, naval, or other war purposes. Families who had lived in the area for decades were given 60 days before being forcibly removed, as were the 177 dead in the White Bluff Cemetery. Protests were staged and money was offered by the government, but residents resisted. When they finally were paid for their land, it was delayed by months and thousands of dollars short of what the residents deserved. Frank and Jeannie Wheeler of White Bluffs recalled that their whole 40 acres of property and structures were appraised at well below half of their worth and were bulldozed in May to be replaced with DuPont's nuclear piles and barracks for the plant workers. Mm -hmm. Originally, the reactors were supposed to be built in Tennessee to be more centrally located to the plants at Oak Ridge but the resource demand would be too high on the region, and there was concern about the enrichment plant being so close to the reactor in case the worst happened. So a shrub-step region of Washington State along the Columbia River was chosen instead as the site of what was to become Hanford Engineer Works. Like Los Alamos, it was a gigantic project, the largest in Washington State history. It was a self-contained city with three different locations for the reactors, uranium enrichment, and test conducting, and the whole thing had to remain a complete secret to the public. <laughs> I mean, this is how, like, conspiracy theories get spread. Right. Like Hanford and Los Alamos and the whole Manhattan Project had thousands of people and there was somehow secrecy, you know? like Right. It's insane. Nearby communities did not have any idea that the wind was carrying radioactive isotopes of iodine, ruthenium, strontium, and cerium from upwind Hanford. 
The operators tried to only release these gaseous waste products when the wind was blowing strongly in the direction of lowest population, but sometimes the gas would sit in the basin of Hanford and then get blown wherever the wind blew. So does this mean that they knew that this gas was also bad? They did, yeah. They knew that they knew that there were going to be major health implications of these isotopes, and they didn't know to what extent, but they knew that there were health implications. Gotcha. Okay. And, and like even to say like, oh well, we were blowing it in the direction of lowest population. It's like, is the population zero? Zero? Because that's what it needs to be. That's yeah. the right answer. Yeah, and it was not. <laughs> not. Yeah. <laughs> Iodine-131 was released in the greatest airborne quantities from Hanford. It is estimated that over 420,000 curies were discharged in the first two years, even though Hanford's chief health physicist calculated more than one curie per day would exceed tolerable limits for air and vegetation contamination. <laughs> yeah. One's a problem. Would you like 420,000? Radioiodine is a beta emitter with a half-life of eight days that plants itself in the thyroid when ingested by humans and animals. So, not good stuff. No. Ruthenium-103 and 106 were released when the ventilation systems at Hanford began to corrode and were noticed as contaminants as early as 1945. It poisoned the soil and many of the foods and medicinal herbs used by the nearby, nearby indigenous tribes, as well as other local farmers and residents. Hanford also contaminated the water of the Columbia River, which was used to cool the reactors. River water is not inert and has many elements which can become radioactive when blasted with neutrons, like calcium, chromium, and zinc. The scientists at Hanford knew this, and so they held the water for 30 minutes to 6 hours to allow for short-lived radionuclides to decay, but the longer-lived ones remained to be released into the river in water too warm for the eggs and young of salmon, steelhead trout, and whitefish to survive. Mm. Fish that did survive were discovered to have deformities which correlated with different levels of radiation exposure. At 250 rads, which again is just another... It's just another level. I'm not going to explain it. But at 250 rads, the fish thinned. They physically became thinner. At 1,000, they developed enormous tumors for the size of their shrunken bodies. At 10,000, they had cataracts. Some of the radionuclides the fish were exposed to even lived long enough to be carried into the Pacific Ocean and wreck unknown forms of destruction there. Sometimes, the reactors themselves leaked, releasing radioactive uranium, phosphorus, arsenic, zinc, chromium, and neptunium into the river, which, when ingested, targeted the GI tract, bones, reproductive, and blood-forming organs of humans and animals. Even when radioactive wastewater was released as planned into unlined, muddy swamps, they would dry out in the spring and summer. The harsh winds of the region would then blow the radioactive dust into nearby communities. <sighs> to avoid the dust, the water was eventually stored underground to be safely absorbed by soil. Or so they thought. <laughs> Damn. Well, yeah. this is all very unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> In the 1940s, it was believed by the Hanford scientists that sand and gravel were perfect sponges for radioactive waste, because they thought there would be ion exchange with elements in soil that would stabilize the electron-proton balance. Whatever the fuck that's supposed to mean. 
I will say that the most highly radioactive liquid wastes were not poured directly into soil, but were stored in 149 underground tanks, holding between 54,500 and 1 million gallons each. What? It was an enormous that's amount a, of waste. That's a, well, that's just, that. that's insane. Yeah. And, you know, storing tanks underground, we know how that goes. There were leaks. And we also know how pouring liquid waste straight into the ground goes. Yeah. If it was poured into fine clay, it still migrated a bit, but less, less than the liquid poured into coarser gravel, which migrated very quickly and soon contaminated the groundwater near Hanford, but also plumed into the Columbia River. Mm. An estimated 3.8 billion gallons of waste <gasps> was poured directly into the earth, carrying 2.5 million curies worth of beta radioactivity. Holy shit. And part of the reason that there were so many safety and waste storage issues, aside from just completely misunderstanding how radiation in soil works, is because this was a, a government function that was low on time and low on money, and Leslie Groves pushed DuPont to cut corners. Mm -hmm. Army Corps of Engineers <clears throat> Lieutenant Colonel Frank Matthias oversaw construction and operation of Hanford alongside DuPont managers, and he knew that a campus of this size needed thousands of people to get it off the ground. Despite this need, Matthias's and Grove's racism got in their own way, and originally they only hired white workers to do the work. In 1943, the Fair Employment Practices Commission told them that as a federally funded project, they could not discriminate based on race. But it was not until 1944 that DuPont hired any black workers. Even then, these workers were segregated into colored barracks, bathrooms, mess halls, and even theaters separate from their white co-workers, and they were paid less. The 100 Mexican workers hired out of the 125,000 total people were also forced into this segregation. Well. And of course, I'm not saying that I think everybody should be equally exposed to radiation, but it's pretty shitty that on top of everything, they were also fucking racist against people right. in their own country. Right. And then... In 1943, in an effort to avoid hiring minorities, Matthias set up a prison labor camp called uh, Col <laughs> okay. called Columbia Camp and filled it with what Prison Industries, Inc. assured him were trustworthy inmates, white pacifists and conscientious objectors to the war. He did this under the pretense that many of the fruit orchards in the area needed to be maintained to avoid public relations issues and to also ensure that the orchards could be returned to the farmers of the land after the war. But that was total bullshit. There was no intention of doing that at all. And the inmates did pick the fruit in the orchards, but it was sold by prison industries for $150,000 a year on top of the $313,000 a year they made managing and guarding the prison. Mm. The living conditions of all the temporary construction workers, workers in regular Hanford camp were absolutely terrible. They were constantly surveilled because of their temporary status and kept behind barbed wire. Although, the secrets about what they were doing got out because there were 750 to 850 workers that quit 
per day during the worst times in the summer of 1944. Roaches and fleas infested the camp and were sprayed with DDT. And there was rampant crime. In the 23 months the camp existed, DuPont recorded four suicides, five murders, 69 sex cases, not including rape because that was considered free market exchange and only happened because there was prostitution in the camp, which they blamed on the women, and some guys didn't want to pay, which they also blamed on the women. Of course. There were 88 cases of bootlegging, 177 robberies, 450 grand larceny cases, 1,124 burglaries, and 3,156 charges for intoxication. So things were a little rocky there. A little rocky. Yeah, DuPont is not managing these people and making sure they're happy. So no, I would say that people who are doing this are very unhappy. They're very unhappy. <laughs> yeah. Happy people don't burglarize things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As for the workers employed to actually run the plant after its construction, all of them were described by DuPont and the Army Corps of Engineers as "quote unquote" higher types. All of them were white. All of them were Protestant. Only 15% of them were Catholic, and only 10 total people were Jewish. So, we are fighting in a war against the Nazis, and we're hiring white hire types, and only 10 of them are Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. Not a good look. No, not. If they were low-skilled workers, they were not informed of the hazards of working in the plant, which meant that many of the women were not warned of any possible Mm. health concerns. And because of the labor shortages that continued into plant operations, even some of the workers tasked with handling chemicals were not told what kind of dangers were associated with their occupation. As early as 1944, the first Hanford worker fell ill. Don Johnson was 36 years old when he was hired as a chemical engineer in 1943. In the fall of 1944, he had nausea and gastric pain, his gums bled, his legs ached, he had fatigue and night sweats. He went to his doctor at the Richland Medical Center and a week later was diagnosed with acute leukemia. Johnson died only a few months later. DuPont attempted to skirt any blame that might have been placed on them for Johnson's death by saying he was exposed to radiation in Chicago and Oak Ridge before coming to Hanford. Johnson's wife sued the company, and their lawyers convinced Leslie Groves to pay her a settlement. And this was because they knew that workplace hazards were at fault in Johnson's death, or at least highly suspected as much. Mm. In 1942, the medical section of the Manhattan Project worried that workers could end up with so much radiation contamination as to produce physiological damage that would undermine the secrecy of the project. (laughs) And in 1943, when they were starting to hire for the plant, DuPont executives were asking questions like, what advantage would there be in hiring women beyond the age of menopause or older men? Oh, yeah, icky. Well, and I don't like that everybody's not informed like this. Oh, yeah. this is wor- like I I wish they didn't know all of this. Mm-hmm. Like, no, the, you know what I mean? Like. It would at least make it seem less malicious. Yeah, yeah. But the fact that they knew and they were just like, well, you know, we really got to fight this war. So 
can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. Egg, it's like yeah. people and eggs are not the same thing. No, like these are actual human lives here that we're yeah. talking about. Yeah. Yeah. The dangers of radiation presented yet another opportunity for the project. In 1942, doctors Joseph Hamilton and Robert Stone were hired onto the medical division of the Manhattan Project as leading researchers in radiobiology. Both of them had a history of treating cancer patients with radiation, and the project did not seem to mind that most of the patients died. Or perhaps they were looking for exactly that kind of experience. Hamilton and Stone were asked to determine if and how Hanford's radioactive waste could be used for offensive purposes. As they were conducting research in mice that found test subjects forced to ingest the waste were nauseated, vomiting, and incapacitated within 24 hours, the medical staff attending to DuPont workers were noticing the same symptoms. Oh, I wonder what it is. Yeah. And so, like... <laughs> Like, we can be mad for, at them for not knowing, but then there's also, like, you're exposing our workers to the exact thing you want to expose the enemy to, which, like... I know, like, like it doesn't make sense. It doesn't. It doesn't. Chillingly, Hamilton also wrote with enthusiasm how radioactive bombs have much greater potential for destruction than regular bombs, and how, quote... A person who has become internally infected with radiation will be subjected to internal irradiation for many months after exposure, end quote. His mood changed as the months progressed, and by the time he was given plutonium for his experiments in 1944, his outlook was dismal. He discovered that, once ingested by rats, rabbits, dogs, monkeys, and likely humans as well, plutonium seeped into the skeleton and contaminated bone marrow. Elsewhere in the body, plutonium easily bioaccumulated and concentrated in high amounts in vital organs. Other radionuclides, like strontium-89, were found to easily transfer from placenta to fetus and through breast milk to infants. I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. Animals developed lymphomas, bone sarcomas, and precancerous cells. They lost their energy and their livers began to fail. Mice exposed to the ionizing radiation of fast neutrons died from general malfunctioning, which could not be pinpointed in necropsies, and the symptoms of which were unique to each animal. General this, malfunctioning. Yeah. Wouldn't you just love to see that on a death certificate? Yeah, just your body malfunctioned. <laughs> like, no shit, it stopped working. Thank you for that. I am aware of the general malfunction. Like, thank you. Yeah. In the summer of 1944, DuPont wrote to Leslie Groves to report a horrifying new discovery. Five micrograms of plutonium entering the body through the mouth or nose or by skin absorption will constitute a lethal dose. The poisonous effect of the product is cumulative i.e. plutonium entering the body is permanently absorbed and effective like radium. This lethal dose was debated among DuPont scientists. The number was based on previously established safety limits for radium, but that did not mean that the actual threshold for human exposure to plutonium was that low. Case in point, there were not significantly high cases of illness or death among workers. I mean, aside from that pesky outbreak of TB at Oak Ridge that was being managed. Right, right. 
<laughs> and nor was there an uptick in miscarriages or birth defects among workers, and even the animals outside of the campus seemed to be fine. The only way to determine a safe dose in humans, DuPont determined, was to conduct human experiments. Uh, okay. Under Hamilton's direction, 18 uninformed subjects were... <laughs> yeah. Sorry, yeah. I was a little taken aback by the, the uninformed part. <laughs> were injected with 5 to 100 micrograms of plutonium, and five more were dosed with 18.5 microcuries of polonium-contaminated food in Oak Ridge, Rochester, and San Francisco between 1945 and 1947. Symptoms were not tracked in these subjects. The only thing the Manhattan Project doctors were concerned about was whether or not the people died and the rate at which plutonium was metabolized and then excreted. None of the human subjects did die, but their family members would later recall how they suffered with weakness, depression, and intense pains. Seven of these people lived longer than 10 years, which was the upper limit of life expectation given to them by the Manhattan Project physicians, and five lived longer than 20 years afterwards. None of them were told until 1974 what they'd been poisoned with. Could you imagine that conversation, though? Oh my god, no. Absolutely like, not. The amount of gaslighting that they probably went through, and then they were like, yeah, we did it. Yeah, by the way, we did that. Mm-hmm. Like, what? no, I, I can't fucking imagine. I, I think that I might literally black out and wake up with somebody's throat in my hands, you know? Yeah, that's crazy to me. Like, that's crazy. But so let's talk about what it means for plutonium to have a lethal dose. We've already talked a bit about neutron radiation, our old pals and x-rays that were used to discover fission. Neutrons penetrate deeply into tissues, but don't ionize the molecules there. Rather, they smash the nuclei of our hydrogen atoms, and that can lead to the DNA damage that mm. they cause. Then there are gamma rays, which are energetic waves that also penetrate deeply and can damage tissue by displacing the electrons in our cells. This is actually low-energy transfer and causes less damage than high-energy transfer forms of radiation. Okay. However, gamma rays are still dangerous to be exposed to and require several feet of lead to completely protect oh. living tissue from exposure. Okay, then. Beta particles are high-speed electrons that penetrate less deeply than gamma rays but are still extremely damaging to skin and exposure can cause severe burns. Humans can protect themselves from beta radiation with a few millimeters of aluminum foil or several feet of concrete. What a visual, though. Yeah. <laughs> what a visual, though. Like, this aluminum foil or feet of concrete. Like, several right. feet of concrete. Like. It makes you realize how porous concrete is. Mm-hmm. And then there are <clears throat> alpha particles. These are relatively heavy, positively charged particles made up of two protons and two neutrons and typically written as helium with a plus two charge. These do not penetrate deeply when we are exposed externally, and a single sheet of paper or even our first layer of dead skin cells can block deeper penetration. All radiation is damaging when it enters our body. But alpha radiation is particularly damaging internally because it steals electrons from our cells and destroys the molecules, killing the cell entirely. 
But that's not all, because when cells are irradiated with alpha radiation, it has been demonstrated that neighboring cells untouched by the particles can also undergo mutations and become malignant. Oh. For this reason, alpha radiation is a potent cause of cancer. And this is the most profound danger of plutonium exposure. Mm. When ingested, typically via inhalation, plutonium collects in the lung, liver, and bones. However, the radioactive half-life of plutonium-239 is 24,065 years, but the biological half-life is 118 years. So atoms that lodge themselves in these organs for decades do not emit the kind of energy that quickly burns or necrotizes the tissue, but the 200 decay events per second undergone by a single microgram attribute to the high risk of mortality and morbidity from cancer. Moreover, the dose of radiation received does not strongly correlate to incidence of cancer, making it difficult to assign a lethal dose value to plutonium. And mm. there is no recorded case of human death resulting from acute plutonium exposure. Interesting. Mm-hmm. This is where nuclear is just... It's a different beast altogether. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Animal studies have been conducted to attempt to estimate a lethal dose value. 50% of dogs given an intravenous injection of 0.32 milligrams per kilogram plutonium died within 30 days. Using this number directly, it's estimated that 22 milligrams could kill the average human within 30 days, and it's further estimated that an inhalational dose would have to be approximately 88 milligrams. If listeners do their own Google searches into the stuff I haven't talked about as deeply and they have questions, they may come across instances of people dying after direct exposure to plutonium, like those in Nagasaki, but there were also individual cases of people being exposed physically directly to plutonium cords without an explosion. They are very similar to the cases at Nagasaki, but because of their proximity and the slight difference in exposure compared to Nagasaki, I want to talk about it to make it clear. But again, these aren't like direct exposures to plutonium causing the deaths, and you'll see why. So the first such criticality accident, as it's called, was just after the bombings in Japan on August 21st, 1945. Physicist Louis Slaughton's 24-year-old assistant, Henry Dachlian, was conducting critical mass experiments with plutonium while Lewis was away on business. Critical mass is the smallest mass of radioactive material that sustains a fission reaction on its own, which is important if you want to generate energy or make a neutron bomb out of the material that you have. Dothlian had done these experiments with the small reactor piles before and was comfortable with the material, so he was taking some shortcuts with adding mass to the pile instead of doing it a little at a time. Mm. He probably could have gone slower and used a smaller amount, but he was moving quickly, and the fission was already starting when he accidentally dropped one of the bricks, which created the pile onto the core. The brick caused the core to reflect neutrons, and a purple-blue glow was observed, meaning that critical mass had officially been achieved and the fission was beginning. Dachian panicked and reached into the pile to pick up the brick, but dropped it again. <laughs> He then began pulling bricks off of the pile to stop the neutrons from being reflected back and continue the fission reaction, but in doing so, he was releasing neutrons into the room. Mm. 
He got the reaction to stop and thought that everything was fine because another researcher had recently been directly exposed to supercritical uranium-235, and he'd been fine. But that night, Dahlian checked himself into the Los Alamos hospital with nausea, and they determined he'd been exposed to high levels of radiation based on the activity of the coins in his pocket. And he died 28 days later. Nine months after that, in May of 1946, Louis Slaughton was conducting a demonstration with plutonium involving two beryllium hemispheres being brought together to induce criticality. The hemispheres came together accidentally too quickly, and the blue glow appeared. Mm. Eight other people were present, and seven of them escaped the room without injury. One of them was injured to the point of permanent cataracts, and the demonstrator, Louis Slaughton, he just knew immediately he'd been exposed to a lethal level, yeah. and he died nine days later. Mm. And so the difference here is that regular plutonium on its own, it's just emitting those alpha particles that are very dangerous. But if they don't get into your body, they're not as dangerous because your skin can stop them. What's happening with these mass criticality accidents is that it's neutrons being emitted, and that is a- Not the alpha particles. Yeah, it, that is a different right. beast. Gotcha. On June 6, 1944, the Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy and gained a significant foothold against the Germans. There were also no signs that Germany was making headway in their atomic program, because they weren't. They had continued to try to build reactors with heavy water, which is a very difficult way to go about the process. And they had no central leadership to navigate the difficulties in their program, like Groves or Oppenheimer. It appeared to the Americans that they were no longer a threat at all, and a spy in the know recalled saying to colleague Robert Furman, Isn't it wonderful that the Germans have no atom bomb? Now we won't have to use ours. <laughs> to which Furman, who knew Groves better, replied, If we have such a weapon, we are going to use it. Which is pretty chilling. Yeah. The military seemed set on using any weapon that was created. Even after the German surrender on May 7, 1945, work on the Manhattan Project continued. The battles of Iwo Jima and Okinawa in early 1945 prevented Americans from encroaching on Japanese territory in the war. On May 31, 1945, a committee was held at the Pentagon with Groves, Oppenheimer, and several project scientists, and newly sworn in President Truman. At this meeting, it was suggested likely not for the first time, that a demonstration of the bomb should be staged to convince the Japanese to surrender. If not a demonstration, then actual use of the bomb on a target such as a vital war plant employing a large number of workers and closely surrounded by workers' houses. They were kind of specific about what they were going for. The next day, on June 1st, it was decided that the bomb should be used against Japan as soon as possible on a war plant with this exact layout and without prior warning. It was important to the leaders in this committee and leading the war overseas that the Japanese endure as much psychological torture as possible. Scientists on the project objected to this. James Franck of Chicago argued against an unannounced attack on a Japanese city and recommended that the bomb be dropped somewhere uninhabited instead. The following month, Leo Szilard, who urged President Roosevelt to begin the nuclear program to best the Nazis nearly a decade before, 
circulated a petition warning against a military attack and advocating for a consideration of moral responsibility of atomic weaponry, which was signed by 70 scientists. So, like, at least there's kind of this consideration, like... In the in that community. Yeah. yeah, like, we've been doing what we thought was necessary, but also now that the Germans are kind of out of the war, we are concerned we... about the moral implications. Mm -hmm. And yet... Only one scientist fully left the project. Mm. Polish physicist Joseph Rotblot. And the reason that most of the rest of the scientists gave for staying, despite knowing where the project was ultimately leading, even after Nazi surrender, was essentially scientific curiosity. Mm -hmm. They wanted to know if the bomb would work like they thought it would. Yeah, I I kind of figured that's what it was, is that they're just enamored with the project itself. I think like, so. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's gross. It's frankly yeah. gross. Yeah. The first test of the atomic bomb was conducted on July 16th at 5.30 in the morning. The Trinity test detonated 5,000 pounds of high explosives and 13 pounds of plutonium in the New Mexico desert on the Alamogordo Air Base's bombing range. The energy released was equivalent to roughly 20,000 tons of TNT and was three to five times greater than expected. The resulting cloud, which was expected to only rise some 12,000 feet above the ground, went up an estimated 50 to 70,000 feet. Nine-tenths of a mile from the blast, the surface of the Earth had been heated to 750 degrees Fahrenheit. The flash, like a sudden sunrise, could be seen for 150 miles and was witnessed by civilians in Jornada del Muerto, Albuquerque, Santa Fe, El Paso, and other locations up to 180 miles away. Those who were within 100 miles of the blast had their windows rattled in the aftershock, and 100 miles beyond that, the explosion could still be heard. A witness on the bombing range described it this way. No man-made phenomenon of such tremendous power had ever occurred before. The whole country was lighted by a searing light with the intensity many times that of the midday sun. Thirty seconds after the explosion came, first, the air blast pressing hard up against people and things to be followed of doomsday and made us feel that we puny things were blasphemous to dare temper with the forces heretofore reserved to the Almighty. And as Oppenheimer would later infamously write, he recalled a line from the Hindu Bhagavad Gita, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. The world changed irreparably in those moments, but in so many ways it also stayed the same. Alamogordo received a number of inquiries regarding the blast, but the press release from the Air Force was written by Lieutenant Colonel Bateus to obfuscate. A remotely located ammunition magazine containing a considerable amount of high explosive and pyrotechnics exploded. There was no loss of life or injury to anyone, and the property damage outside of the explosives magazine itself was negligible. Weather conditions affecting the content of gas shells exploded by the blast may make it desirable for the army to evacuate temporarily a few civilians from their homes. There were concerns about the size of the blast, as well as fallout, but they were mostly overlooked. James Chadwick wrote his own obituary ahead of the Trinity detonation, just in case, <laughs> and the physicians at Los Alamos were left to concern themselves with how the mushroom cloud fell over the desert. Beforehand, it was estimated that five rontgens would be the maximum dose for an individual. 
which is, like most measurements of radiation, convoluted to explain, <laughs> and I'm not going to. But it was named after our pal who discovered x-rays and used it to measure x-ray radiation, Dr. Rongen. Dr. Nolan of Los Alamos did not know that in 1934, the U.S. Advisory Committee on X-ray and Radium Protection recommended 0.1 as an acceptable tolerance dose. So without this information, he and his team settled on five rontgens for the evacuation plan given to Groves. <laughs> However, a week before the test, another physician, Dr. Warren, declared that he would only worry about doses above 10 rontgens and that 60 to 100 rontgens over two weeks would not be harmful and evacuation should only be ordered above those levels. In reality, homes monitored after the blast were found to have 30 to 40 rontgens and one canyon northeast of Bingham had 230 rontgens of radiation. Wow. Two families of ranchers were living just a mile from this canyon. Dr. Warren wrote to Groves that, quote, The dust outfall from the various portions of the cloud were potentially a very serious hazard over a band almost 30 miles wide, extending almost 90 miles northeast of the site. Even five days after the test, there was still a tremendous amount of radioactive dust floating in the air. Despite these measurements, no evacuation measures were taken. Dr. Warren only suggested that any future tests should be conducted somewhere with a radius of at least 150 miles without population. And I tried to look up a map to see if there was anywhere that was 150 miles without population. Mm -hmm. And it kind of seems like the only place was Nevada. And we will be talking about the Nevada test site in the next episode. So I guess okay. that tracks. Okay. But there would be no future tests. And the next place a bomb would be dropped had a population of over 255,000 people. The war was drawing to an end. Messages intercepted between Japan and Russia before the Trinity explosion explicitly stated that Japan wanted the war to end. But following the Potsdam Conference in Germany on July 26th, America was demanding an unconditional surrender, something that we would be unlikely to accept if the tables were turned. Japan was not willing to surrender unconditionally, and the United States had spent $2 billion on a bomb that was supposed to end all wars, one way or another. Four cities were chosen as targets to force Japan to, to agree to unconditional surrender. Kyoto, Hiroshima, Kokura, and Niigata. One of the Manhattan Project leaders argued against the bombing of Kyoto as an important historic and cultural site for Japan, and got President Truman to agree. They made their choice. On August 6th, the four-ton uranium bomb, dubbed Little Boy for its slender form compared to the round Fat Man plutonium bomb tested at Trinity, was loaded onto a B-29 plane. At around 8.16 a.m., the bomb was dropped on the AOE Bridge in central Hiroshima, far from a war plant surrounded by military houses. In fact, although Hiroshima did house the Second Army headquarters, the ratio of civilians to military in the city was 6 to 1, and they had all been suffering for the war. The citizens of Japan were running out of rations, even as their leaders were considering surrender, and some of them had to resort to eating what they could forage or starve. In fact, the zoo in Tokyo had actually been emptied, and the, the animals there had been slaughtered except for a couple of elephants for food. Oh, wow. The citizens of Japan were not given a warning that they were being bombed, but the planes had been spotted and the alarms were sounded. 
only they'd been sounded too soon. When the first plane checking the weather flew over at 7.09, the air raid alarms went off, but they were silenced at 7.31 when the plane was gone. The next set of planes came at 8.15 without warning to the people, and almost no one ducked for cover. The bomb was detonated in the air, 1,900 feet above Shima Hospital, and 1.2 pounds of uranium exploded with the energy of 12,500 tons of TNT and deeply penetrating gamma rays and X-rays. Those below the explosion were killed instantly, but those who were far enough away to survive were blinded by the intensity of the blast, followed by a short but intense heat that caused nearby objects to instantly burst into flame. Even those who were over two miles away felt their skin rise to 120 degrees Fahrenheit in a millisecond. Thermal skin burns were separated into five grades. Red burns, three kinds of white burns, and carbonized skin with charring and evaporation of the viscera. Basically, their organs dissolved and the rest of them burnt to piles of ash. Their shadows remained printed on walls, staircases, and even concrete surfaces. These surfaces were blasted with heat and had their surfaces instantly charged and evaporated, but anything in front of them which took the brunt of the heat left ghostly images. A man with a ladder, young girls skipping a rope, a boy sitting among trees and flowers and reaching for something next to him, the plants now gone as well. Hiroshima was a place without time or season in an instant. The sky was blackened. All the clocks became stuck at a quarter past eight. There were no sounds of birds or insects, because there were no more birds or insects. A fourth-grade boy remembered being thrown eight yards into a fence and blinded. And then... The first thing my eyes lighted upon, then, was the flat stretch of land with only dust clouds rising from it. Everything had crumbled away in one moment, and changed into streets of rubble, street after street of ruins. The shadow shielding of surfaces also worked the other way. Some people, even in the hypocenter of the explosion, were spared during the initial blast when others were eviscerated simply because they had been behind a wall. Others further away from the blast were shielded by surfaces as thin as paper doors and found that the skin that was exposed to the blast was immediately scorched like the worst kind of sunburn they'd ever experienced, or it blinded them. One teacher was only separated from the bomb in blindness by a piece of paper containing a student's character practice. The white paper reflected the energy away from her face, but the dark characters absorbed it, scarring her with the dead child's last words forever. A man with his eyes sticking out about two inches called me my name, and I felt sick. People's bodies were tremendously swollen. You can't imagine how big a human body can swell up. The air itself seemed to catch fire as smoke and debris formed flaming tornadoes which picked up loose sheets of metal and trolleys and sent them flying dangerously towards survivors. In the wake of these tornadoes, any structures which remained standing licked with flames. Those who were able attempted to take shelter in the Otah River, but it was no safer there as ruined buildings continued to collapse into the water and the debris and bodies were swept downstream. You could tell that many people had gone down to the river to get a drink of water and had died where they lay. I saw a few live people still in the water, knocking against the dead as they floated down the river. There must have been hundreds and thousands who fled to the river to escape the fire and then drowned. Then the black rain came. 
radioactive fallout and ash from the fires and the people taken in the first moments of the blast rose up into the clouds and seeded, creating dark rain the consistency of tar that poured down upon the city. The heavy droplets stuck to the skin, causing further radiation burns and left permanent black streaks on the buildings left standing. Ship designer Tsutomu Yamaguchi felt such a powerful thirst from the dehydration caused by the burns on his arms and neck that he drank straight from the river and then realized it was full of blood and the corpses of people whose skin had melted or been ripped away like a coat by the compressed air following the explosion and hung in rags on their bones. He then found some boys who had survived, but the force of the bomb's blast had ripped blades of grass from the earth and pierced their backs. He tried to help them, but they were weak and disoriented and eventually wandered away. The appearance of people was, well, they all had skin blackened by burns. They had no hair because their hair was burned, and at a glance you couldn't tell whether you were looking at them in the front or in the back. I can still picture them in my mind like walking ghosts. American planes dropped leaflets disguised as currency over the country that literally could not believe this, the stories they were hearing about Hiroshima. President Truman's statement was printed on the back of these leaflets and told them that America had the power to completely destroy Japan. The leaflets urged evacuation and surrender. Tokyo refused to respond to these messages, but the citizens of Japan were trying to evacuate the larger cities. Back in Hiroshima, hospital supplies were running low with already low food supplies, and the first recorded symptoms of heavy, lethal, and momentary doses of whole-body irradiation known as atomic bomb sickness began to set in among those still living. Survivors began to notice in themselves and others a strange form of illness. It consisted of nausea, vomiting, loss of appetite, diarrhea with large amounts of blood in the stools, fever and weakness, purple spots on various parts of the body from bleeding into the skin, inflammation and ulceration of the mouth, throat, and gums, bleeding from the mouth, gums, throat, rectum, and urinary tract, loss of hair from the scalp and other parts of the body, extremely low white blood cell counts, and in many cases, a progressive course until death. People were essentially decaying from the damage caused by the gamma radiation, but they were still in a state of something like being alive. Flies and mosquitoes and fleas fell upon the living and the living dead in the city. Infections began to quickly spread. Three men boarded one of the last trains out of town, Tsutomu Yamaguchi had a high fever and was suffering from violent dry heaving. The radiation poisoning his body had forced him to vomit everything his stomach could hold, and despite his intense thirst, he could not keep down even sips of water. Takijiro Nishioka was experiencing stinging and itching in his legs. Akira Iwananaga was also thirsty and fighting intense nausea. All three of these men were trying to evacuate to reach family or friends or at least safety, and were on their way to Nagasaki. The Fat Man plutonium implosion bomb was loaded onto a plane originally destined for Kokura on August 9th, but the bombers were unable to get a clear view of their target city because of cloudy weather and were running low on fuel. With only 1,500 gallons remaining, they could either drop the bomb in the ocean or in the fifth city that was put on the list of targets at the last moment. 
Nagasaki was not the ideal target because the U.S. military wanted to bomb a city that had not been marred by firebombing earlier in the war. Damage to this city, it was decided, had been minimal. Similar to the morning the sun rose twice over Hiroshima, air raid alarms were sounded at 7 a.m. in Nagasaki, but were stopped at 9 a.m. When the American plane flew over the city at 11.02 a.m., there was no warning. The bomb detonated 1,650 feet above the city and caused 13.6 pounds of plutonium to fission, causing a cascade of neutrons that released energy equivalent to 22,000 tons of TNT. If there is anything to be thankful for concerning this attack, it is that the bomb was dropped a mile and a half north of its intended target, outside the central part of the city, and Nagasaki's steep hills protect parts of the city from the decimation experienced by the far more exposed Hiroshima. Everyone back in that ruined city who was still alive could see the flash of the explosion 183 miles away, but there were nine survivors who had made their way to Nagasaki in the last few days and saw the eye of hell open up again in front of them. Oh my god. Takejiro Nishioka told everyone on the road around him to take cover when he saw the fireball, and estimated that they had about 15 seconds to take cover. He and others took shelter behind a bus that nearly tipped over on them from the force of the blast. Four-year-old Kayano was sheltered by a mountain on her side of the stream, as were the chickens and butterflies and plants. On the other side of the stream, the world was a dark mirror image of smoldering destruction and death that had not been shielded from the full force of the blast. A boy standing on that side with his cow later described seeing fireballs shoot out of the center of the explosion. One hit his cow and caused her to burst into flames, killing her instantly. One of these also hit the boy, but his death was delayed. His attending physician, Kayano's father, thought that the fireball expedited his death compared to others who were badly sunburnt but had not received extra radiation from the fireballs. Moments after, both the boy and Kayano saw the light and felt the heat on their respective sides of the stream. The dark rain poured down on both of them. Michi Hattori, a 15-year-old schoolgirl, was able to take shelter and was urging her friends to join her when she felt the heat. The x-rays penetrated her friends' bodies and she saw their skeletons through their skin and clothes before they burst into flame and disappeared altogether. The light blinded Michi and when her vision returned and she wandered out of her shelter, she found another girl sitting on the ground next to a shadow of a different girl. She tried to help her up and the skin of her hand and forearm peeled off into Michi's hand. The fire tornadoes formed in Nagasaki as in Hiroshima, picking up houses and boats and setting flame to them before casting them aside. Gates from the prison were taken up and thrown back down into the street. Three air cadets decided to get a closer look at the mushroom cloud and flew a plane directly through the Tower of Death only around 30 minutes after detonation. The ground below them was boiling, and when one of them stuck their hand out the cockpit window, the falling dust burnt through his glove. Their eyes burned, and before they were even able to break through to daylight again, the engine of the plane was beginning to fail from the sticky fallout, and the pilots were vomiting. Although they were each exposed to approximately equivalent doses of radiation, one of them vomited blood, fell into a delirium, and two years later succumbed to his leukemia. Another died from leukemia 19 years later, 
and the last man who stuck his hand out the window survived until the 1970s, but the burn on his hand never fully healed. Mm -hmm. Victims who died immediately following the attacks in Hiroshima and Nagasaki were divided into three groups based on their time of death. Death in weeks one to two were considered very severe cases of exposure. Three to six, and after six weeks, were both considered severe. The symptoms of all three groups were similar, and the prognosis could be made based on how close the patients were to the hypocenter, whether they were at all protected from the brunt of the blast, how quickly the symptoms came on, whether they experienced skin degloving, and their white blood cell counts. A white blood cell count of less than 500 was typically a death sentence. What were theirs typically around, do we know? <clears throat> I mean, they ranged. They Some of them were really, really low, but I'm not sure what the average was. I mean, it, it varied so widely from person to person. It was really just a, a way to yeah. see, you know, who you How needed bad. to give your attention to and things mm -hmm. like that. The effects of initial radiation from gamma rays and neutrons was more well known, but since widespread environmental radioactive contamination had never been studied or experienced, the residual or secondary radiation from the penetration of soil and other substances, which creates new radioactive isotopes, was less well understood. The weeks of reports of the new illness dubbed atomic bomb sickness frightened Groves, who thought that this was maybe not a great look for a country that was officially opposed to biological and chemical warfare, mm -hmm. and who had been reassured by Oppenheimer after the Trinity test that there were no appreciable activity on the ground, and whatever there was would decay rapidly. Although most Americans polled were in favor of bombing Japan, it still didn't do anything for the image of the atomic bomb and its inventors when the first person to die from radiation poisoning in 1945 was a famous actress named Midori Naka. She and her troop were in Hiroshima when it was attacked, and she died only 18 days later after receiving the best medicine possible at the time. Either Oppenheimer did not know about the hot canyon near Bingham or was hoping for the best, and that's why he had told Groves what he had. Dr. Warren had known about these things and had warned Groves before the attacks on Japan that there would be risk to American troops entering the bombed areas immediately after detonation, with levels of radiation nearing an estimated 500 rotgens. Hmm. The American story to the world was all lies. They still described Hiroshima as a military base, and in September they, they denied that the bomb produced the lingering radioactivity in the cities, all while admitting that the survivors were dying from decreased white blood cells which is a sign of radiation poisoning. Yeah, it's like, what is it from then? <laughs> Where did you come from? Right. 140,000 people are estimated to have died in Hiroshima by the end of 1945, some 54% of the population, and 70,000 people are estimated to have died in Nagasaki. However, because of the long-term effects of radiation, the true toll may be unknown. Perhaps if the physicians involved in the Manhattan Project had been more honest about their findings that Leslie Groves communicated to Congress in the fall of 1945, the effects of residual radiation would have been taken more seriously. He did not say that they found no residual radiation in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but downplayed the numbers the physicians had already fudged for him to report to Congress. The Manhattan Project was Groves' legacy, and he wasn't going to let anyone besmirch it. 
The Emperor of Japan superseded the military leaders by agreeing to a surrender, which was accepted on August 10th. The Potsdam Declaration was accepted five days later, and by the end of the month, the Allied powers were occupying Japan and being exposed to the residual radiation that the project physicians had warned about and which the U.S. military chose to ignore. World War II ended with Japan's official surrender on September 2nd, and the Manhattan Project was reorganized to a civilian commission on August 1st, 1946. But this did not mean an end to America's nuclear research. On the contrary, the atomic age was only beginning. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us everywhere you get your podcasts. For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Tumblr, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fogweaver. More of their music can be found on Bandcamp.com. Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Venus Daneko. Stay safe, and remember, the dose makes the poison.